Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Good morning. How are we? My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor here at Sojourn Church, and we are so glad that you're joining us this weekend, especially if it's your first time uh, in these unprecedented times that you have decided to join us. We hope that this is a good experience for you and that you will continue to join us uh, on the weekends. And then we also have a group that meets on Wednesday nights, uh, social distance, of course. So if that interests you at all, uh, please let us know. and We'd love to get you connected to that. Um, This morning, I want to give us uh, just a little brief update on kind of our gathering plan before we get into the specific details on um, on what everything's going to look like. And so starting today, right now, obviously, if you're watching this online, then you are joining us online. And we are glad, once again, that you have chosen to do that. But we're also meeting in person um, right this second at the uh, Oregon Stamp Society building, which is the space that we rent for the weekend gatherings. And so uh, if you didn't know that, we are starting that this Sunday and the next two Sundays. And we're just kind of, this is a trial. We're just kind of see the interest from the community And then also if our faithful regular attenders will also come indoors um, and just to go from there, we'll reevaluate things just like every other church. We're trying to figure this thing out. Now, there's three things that we need during this phase of regathering in person. First, we need to remain fluid as things will most likely change weekly. Now, we're not going to try to change things weekly. We're trying to keep things as consistent as possible. We have to expect in this phase, depending on CDC guidelines that come out or this week, the Portland Public Schools announced that schools will not go back in person until January 28th at the earliest. And so we just have to remain fluid as a church body. The second thing that we need is for individuals to remain flexible. I think about short-term mission uh, trips whenever people would come visit us in South Asia or or even now when when groups will come from different parts of the country to work with us in the summer, we'll say, remain flexible. We have our agenda. We have our plans but know that things will likely change. And so we just ask that you remain flexible. And then the third thing is we need participation. In order to gather in person, it means that we have to make sure our space is sanitized before we gather. It has to be set up in a way that has got a natural flow and social distance and family units will sit together at six feet apart. There'll be no food, no beverage, no um, children's ministry. And then we have to clean it all up afterwards. And so we are asking that one, that you would come back in person. I think we're at a phase and a place that we're ready to start doing that. But we also ask that you would participate by helping to, to sanitize the building or help set up or help sanitize the building after the gathering. This is a good opportunity and, and really a blessing for us as a church as we can realize that we can all participate in this. I think sometimes churches get at a place where only those on staff or only the paid people are the ones who end up doing everything. And it was never designed to be that way. And that's never been the desire of Sojourn, but that all of us, as we're a family, remember our second value of family, a family of servant missionaries on mission together. And so part of that is serving one another and serving our community by participating in something like this. And so my prayer and hope is that every single weekend, that one, you would show up, whether it's in person or online, and that you would show up expecting to receive something, but also that you would show up expecting to give something, as all of us have something to participate and give to the body of Christ. All right, we all on the same page there, hopefully. Okay, so last weekend, we started a new series that we are calling Kingdom Manifesto, where we're taking a look at the countercultural way of Jesus um, and really practicing these ways as a Christian. And these are from Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. 
And last week we set up the context by looking at the Old Testament history of Israel. And what we saw is that the gospel is the completion of Israel's story and Jesus' story. Now, if you weren't with us last week or if you did not participate, we do have this sermon available wherever you podcast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Look it up, our introductory sermon, and go back and watch that. Don't do that right now. Go ahead and stick with us, but go back and watch that as it'll help set up some of the context for where we're going this morning and where we'll go the rest of this series. Now, let me remind you that at this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is at the height of his popularity. He's been baptized, he's been tempted, he's returned to Galilee, and he's gone all throughout proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he went from place to place and crowds continue to grow daily as he would proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, last week, we started this series by looking at the opening verses, and we saw where Jesus, he climbed up on the mount to get to, essentially get away from the crowds, but the crowds followed him, and he wanted to teach his close followers, his disciples. He, he was seated, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. And so this week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at perhaps the most well-known portion of the Sermon on the Mount, what is called the Beatitudes. Now, in his Beatitudes, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to make these pronouncements to the crowds and to the religious leaders, and he's going to then give instructions to his disciples on the nature of life in the kingdom. And so he's going to show them what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And what we're going to see is the Beatitudes, they all begin with this phrase. There's eight of them, and they'll say, blessed are. Now, they are called Beatitudes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed. Some would say happy, but I actually think happy can be, um, for us modern learners, it's kind of a, a, maybe a bad translation because we think of just happy, clappy, joy, joy, and it's not talking about that. But it says that we are blessed, and we'll hopefully unpack that some. And what is it? It's these short statements that summarize the essence of the Sermon on the Mount. So this is really kind of the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Even though it's three chapters long, this is what people think about when they hear the Sermon on the Mount. So the Beatitudes are a radical manifesto of a kingdom way of life. Because Jesus reveals in these, in these uh, Beatitudes who is in the kingdom and who is not in the kingdom. Now, instead of Jesus coming like most of us would have written the story and, and blessing the law, observing faithful, he comes and he blesses the marginalized who stick with God through injustice. And so it's completely upside down from how we as man would have written this story, which causes us to really kind of take a step back and take a note of this sermon. And so the main point of the sermon this morning is that these Beatitudes will describe for us who is the most blessed, who is the most happy and content in the upside down kingdom of God. And that's really what this is. It's an upside down kingdom. And what we'll see is that Jesus blesses that which is countercultural. Jesus blesses that which is revolutionary. And so he turns the culture inside out and he turns the society upside down. This is, in some ways, this isn't the awaited savior that Israel was looking for. Because they thought that he would come in a very different form, in a very different fashion, but instead he comes in the completely opposite. Warren Carter, he says, in the Beatitudes, Jesus has the disciples imagine a different world, a different identity for themselves, a different set of practices, a different relationship to the status quo. Why imagine? Not because it is impossible, not because it is escapist, not because it is fantasy, but it, because it begins to counter patterns embibbed from the culture of the imperial world. And so what we're going to see today in chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, is the true description of a Christian's character. The Beatitudes emphasize these eight different principles 
that are marks of a Christian's character and a Christian's conduct, especially as they relate to God and as they relate to man. So we kind of see them almost divvied up right in half. And, and so the first four, how we relate to God, and the other four, how we relate to one another. And we'll see that there's this divine blessing which rests on those who exhibit these marks. And so these are to be the distinguishing marks of a Christian. It is in these marks where we find the countercultural way and the countercultural lifestyle that we all are to have if we are in Christ. Now, these are not eight separate distinct groups. Rather, these are eight qualities of the same groups describing Christian character. So it's not that we're supposed to pick one or two of these. I mean, I'm really good at this. I really display meekness. It's no, all eight of these are to be an overflow out of our life as Christ is working in and through us to shape us more and more and mold us more and more into his likeness. In other words, these beatitudes are not for some elitist group of of, uh, varsity Christians, Rather, the Beatitudes are Christ's own description of what every Christian ought to be. These are Jesus' descriptions of his followers. So Jesus is the one who gets to define what it is we are to look like. It's it's through his work in us that we exhibit these. So he's saying, this is what my followers are to be. And these are the ideal. Now, we, we, we fail and fall short of these oftentimes, but these are the ideal for every citizen of God's kingdom and what life looks like and is supposed to look like in the kingdom of God. Now, some people mistakenly look at the Beatitudes and they think of these like gifts of the Spirit. And I think about gifts of the Spirit, we're not all given the same gifts. And we're all, we're all part of, we have different gifts and we're all parts, uh, different parts of the body that make up one body and one whole. So one of my gifts is teaching. Um, being a pastor, that's, that's one of the roles that not everyone's given. And then you have a different role to play. But the Beatitudes aren't like that. It's not like, well, we're going to give one of these. The Beatitudes are, are supposed to be something that we exhibit all eight of these as a Christ follower. It's, it's, this shows that you're a Christ follower. And so there is no escape from these eight ideals we are to live by. Every single one of us who is in Christ, this is the expectation that Jesus gives us as his followers. And so just as these eight qualities describe every Christian, at least in the ideal, so the eight blessings are given to every Christian as well. And so the eight qualities show us the responsibilities. And so really we're kind of looking at the responsibility we have as Christ followers. And the eight blessings are going to show us the privilege of being a citizen of God's kingdom. And this is what the enjoyment of God's rule means. So if you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles or, or turn on your, your, your phone's probably on. Open the app on your phone and find Matthew chapter 5. We'll start in verse 3. Once again, it's Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, and we're going to work our way through verse 12, as we look at all eight of these Beatitudes. Uh, So go ahead and pray with me, church, and then uh, we'll get started in the passage itself. God, we come to you this morning, and we just thank you that we are able to gather, whether it's online or in person, but God, we trust that you are building your church. These are difficult days. These are challenging times, and God, it just seems like there's no end in sight, but we put our trust and our faith and our hope in you. God, I ask that this morning, as we look at this, that we would in a sense, get to reflect on our own life and, and ask ourselves, do I exhibit these eight characteristics? Do I exhibit these eight qualities? Or am I missing out on some of these blessings? And God, that you would shape us and mold us and that you would work through us so that we all exhibit these. In your name we pray, amen, amen. All right, and so as we go through these verses, there are three types of blessings that we're gonna see. So I'm gonna kind of chop these into three sections. The first type of blessing is we're gonna see three blessings from the humility of the poor. And so let's start out in verse three. Read with me. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here we are right at the beginning of the Beatitudes at the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus contradicts all human judgments and nationalistic expectations of the kingdom of God. Jesus teaches here, the kingdom is given to the poor. It's not given to the rich. It's given to the feeble. It's not given to the mighty. He says, given to the little children who who are humble enough to accept it. It's not given to soldiers who boast that they can obtain this by their own ability or those who are strong, but it's given to to the poor. Now, in Jesus' day, it was not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom who thought they were rich, so rich that in their merit they thanked God for their attainments, nor was it the zealots who dreamed of establishing the kingdom by blood and sword. But it was the tax collectors. It was the escorts. It was the rejects of human society who knew they were so poor, who knew they were so helpless that they could offer nothing and achieve nothing on their own. But it is those people that God says, you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so the message is clear, that Jesus has come for those who feel like they are losers, who feel like they've messed up their lives. Jesus has come for the people on the margins. Jesus has come for the people who are ordinary, which means this morning that Jesus has come for you. The only people left out are those who think they don't need God. The only people left out are the self-righteous and the self-important. And unfortunately, in our world, that, that includes many people. Unfortunately, in the city of Portland, that includes many people. But if you're joining us this morning and you say, I don't know Christ, the good news is that he has come for you. And that our prayer is that you don't leave this online gathering or this in-person gathering today without knowing how it is that you can put your trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Still today, the condition of receiving the kingdom of God is to acknowledge our spiritual poverty. It's our prayers that you would acknowledge you you have a need for Jesus. And God still sends the self-righteous and the self-important, the rich, away empty. He continues in verse 4. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I'm a big grace guy. If you, if you know me, you know I love to extend grace and we need to show grace to one another. And oftentimes, I have to ask you for grace as, as my own failings as your pastor. But I think sometimes... We can make so much of grace that we mistakenly will make light of sin. I believe there should be more sorrow of our own sin among us. This idea of of being convicted and, and mourning over our own wrongdoings. According to Jesus, the Christian life is not all joy and laughter. I think sometimes we think that. And if you were sold that lie by some ministry leader, I'm sorry. That's just not the case. We see Jesus himself. He weeps over sin of others. He weeps over their consequences and judgment and death. And this should also cause us to weep over sin and evil and and the injustices that we see in the world. Just as we see with the prophets in the Old Testament. I was reading in Jeremiah this week. And just as as he's crying out to God over over the people and and the judgment that is coming upon them. And before we forget it, now I'm talking about crying and mourning over other people's sin. Before we forget that, this should cause us to mourn over our own sin. Because every single one of us, myself included, we still have junk and junk that, that we need to deal with, and junk that sometimes we put off or we'll, we'll kind of compress it down and think that we're okay or pretend that we're okay, but that our own sin should cause us to mourn. This idea of, of removing this, uh, the law from your own eye before you remove the speck from your brother's eye, and so that our own sin should also cause us to mourn. So my question, Sojourn, is when is the last time that your own sin caused you grief? When is it the last time your own sin caused you to cry out to God as, and just say, God, I still have this need for you. You know, the idea of the gospel, it's, 
It's not this one-time thing. It is a one-time thing coming to Jesus, but an ongoing need for the gospel daily in our lives. So the gospel is for every single one of us. And Jesus tells us here, he said, for those of you that mourn, who weep over your sin and the sin of others, it says, we will be comforted. And you'll be comforted by, by God himself, which is really where you can only find true and free forgiveness. It's a freeing thing to mourn over your sin as you seek Jesus and his forgiveness, which is the only place that you can find it. Third beatitude in verse five, it says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, the meek are, are those who are gentle, those who, who don't assert themselves over other people, those who don't come across with agendas in their lives. It's here that we find a, a, a humble spirit, a, a gentle attitude to, towards others, regardless of your standing in society, that you, you come across this way, that you don't come across as being holier than thou and better than others. And Jesus adds, he says, the meek, those types of people shall inherit the earth. Now, we would probably expect the opposite. When we hear the word meek, most of us think of someone who's weak and passive, who, who everybody always ignores them. They never get the promotions. They never get anywhere in life because everyone passes over them and just kind of totally ignores them. But it's not so in the upside down kingdom of God, where we enter the kingdom, not based on our might, not based on our strength, not based on how long we've been in church and how many Bible verses we know or any of those things, but based on our meekness, because we, as we've already seen, Everything else is already ours in Christ Jesus. So what we see in these first three Beatitudes in verses three through five, if you put them together, we find that Jesus is blessing the oppressed and the poor because they put their trust in God. And Jesus is, is blessing them because of their willingness to wait on him for justice in his kingdom and for the devotion that is so deep, the devotion to God that they mourn over their sin and over the sins of others. He says, these are the sort of people, not the typical ones that we would think of, but these are the sort of people that are and will be in God's kingdom. Now, the second type of blessing that's found in these Beatitudes in in verses six through eight is the blessings on those who pursue righteousness and justice. Look at verse six with me. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So we see here, it is not enough to mourn over our past sin. We must also hunger for future righteousness. It says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness recognize that God is the ultimate source of real righteousness. So they long for his righteousness character to be evident in people's lives on earth. It is by responding to his invitation to be in relationship with him that we find our ultimate satisfaction. And so Once again, if you're with us this morning and and you don't know Jesus at all, our prayer is that you hunger and thirst for his righteousness because it's in him that you'll you'll find true satisfaction for your longing. Now, yes, in this life, our hunger will never fully be satisfied, nor our thirst fully quenched as we have a longing for the next life. Continues in verse seven. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, Jesus does not specify the categories of people he has in mind to whom the disciples are to show mercy. To be meek is to acknowledge to others that we are sinners. To be merciful is to have compassion on others for they are also sinners. And so we think about God. Our God is a merciful God and he shows mercy continuously. And as a result, the citizens of his kingdom must go and do likewise. We must show mercy too. And mercy embraces both forgiveness 
for the guilty and compassion for the suffering and the needy as we're all in the same condition. We're all in the same boat. And then verse eight, it says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now the, the pure in heart are those whose pursuit of purity and uprightness affects every area of life. Now, this comes in contrast. Once again, we have to look at the context here. This comes in contrast to the Jewish traditions that overemphasized external ritual purity. For them, it was all about how you can look, right? Some of us do that now. We, we, we show up to a gathering and, and we looked all polished and our Bibles all worn and tatted and, and we're, man, we're good to go. We kind of put on this facade that we have it all together. And that's what we see many times the Jewish traditions doing. But Jesus taught the purity of your heart, what none of us can actually see, that is what's more important. In fact, that's what's most important. So whatever's going on inside of your life internally this morning, that is way more important than what you look like externally. You might be able to quote Bible verses. You might be able to pray like the paint off the wall and pray like nobody else. You might be able to tell us all these facts and knowledge. You have a bunch of head knowledge, but none of that matters. All that matters is what's going on inside. What is going on deep down in your heart that ultimately only God knows that we all see externally as, as a fruit or of an overflow, but only God knows, and that's what matters more. And so what this points out is to one's sincerity. In other words, it's holistic as one's whole life, the public and the private. It's transparent before both God and man. So an example of this, we've all heard stories of, let's just say, ministry leaders who maybe they wrote books and spoke at conferences, and you thought, man, they are a rock star Christian. They're a varsity Christian. They've got it together. Man, like if there's a special class in heaven, like they are in it for sure. Whereas I'm going to probably barely squeak by and get in, but man, they are, they're in that. But then if you ever get to meet some of those people, I'm not saying all those, please don't hear that. But there, I've heard stories and of course, news reports and things that, you know, you might meet some of those people at a conference and I've had that experience. Where I met someone and man, they were the rudest jerk. I think, man, this is not the guy who I see on stage or in the books that I'm reading or, or we hear scandals of pastors, unfortunately. A scandal will come out. And what we see is that these leaders were not pure in heart. They were able to put stuff out there on stage and, and put something in a book or a blog post. But when it comes down to it, they were two different people entirely because there was a heart condition that none of us could see what's going on. I think about my own children, right? Who, who they can know the right answers. Andre and I can disciple them to where they can regurgitate, you know, something about the Bible and about Jesus. But my bigger concern is their heart. And so I might see an attitude from one of them and say, you know, son, what concerns me is your heart condition. What's going on here? Because they can come back and say, I'm sorry, so that I give them back a toy that I took away or, or you let them have ice cream. I told them they can have ice cream at dinner now because they, they backtalked one of us or, or had some kind of attitude. And I always say, look, son, my bigger concern is your heart and what's going on here and that we need Jesus to penetrate and work on your heart and life. And so this is not the pure in heart for the pure in heart are the same before God and men. And that's what he means by pure in heart. And then the third type of blessing that we see in these last set of verses is the blessing on those who create peace. Pick up verse nine. So blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Now those who promote God's messianic peace, uh, the Hebrew word here is shalom, which kind of implies a total well-being, both personally and communally, will receive the ultimate reward by being called sons of God as they reflect the character of their heavenly father. Every Christian, according to this beatitude, is meant to be a peacemaker, both in community and in the church. Let me say that again. Every Christian, so if you're a Christian this morning, according to this beatitude, according to verse 9, 
you are meant to be a peacemaker. This means one of the prominent characteristics of someone who identifies as a child of God is peacemaker. And so, are you a peacemaker? Would the people around you say you're a peacemaker? Would your family say you're a peacemaker? Would your co-workers say you're a peacemaker? Would your neighbors say you're a peacemaker? How about this? Do your social media posts reveal you as a peacemaker? When talking about COVID with someone and who opposes your stance on masks or indoor gatherings or something else, are you a peacemaker? What about politics? Is that the one that tips you over and you think, I'm a peacemaker in every other area of life, but man, politics just get my blood boiling and talking about who we're going to vote for and talking about different ethical issues. Is that the one that tips you over? Because it doesn't give us some qualifying things if it's this topic versus it says we are to be peacemakers. And so in this time of 2020, when it feels like the world is going chaos, in chaos and it continues to get worse, church, we are to be peacemakers. Doesn't mean we don't have stances. Doesn't mean we don't, we, we don't clarify things. Doesn't mean that we don't proclaim different things and, and say, I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to vote this way. Doesn't mean we, we don't give our honest input as Christ followers who are informed, but it does say in the midst of all of those things that we are to be peacemakers. And as a Christ follower, one of our prominent characteristics is peacemaking. Now, verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, think about those who are persecuted. I know that many think churches in the U.S. are being persecuted. And I don't know, maybe we are. Maybe, maybe we're getting to that point with, with COVID, but it's still not to the degree of our brothers and sisters who are quite literally threatened and some of them are killed for their faith on an ongoing basis. But those who are persecuted are those who have been wrongly treated because of their faith. It says that God is pleased when his people show that they value him above everything else in the world. And this happens when they courageously remain faithful in the face of opposition for righteousness sake, for his sake, for his, his glory. And this is a reminder for us, too, that regardless, any form of persecution in our life is short-lived and temporary. So even if, if you feel like maybe we are starting to face forms of persecution in the U.S., and, and I know different pastors and churches have worked on student the government and all that stuff, but the point is, regardless what type of persecution you're facing, this is a reminder that it's short-lived, it's temporary, and ultimately it's for the sake of righteousness, and a reward of the kingdom of heaven will be given to us. And that it is coming in time. So we may not see that here, but it's coming in a future place. And then our final two verses, verse 11 and 12. It said, blessed are those, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets who were before you. So just as Jesus himself faced opposition and persecution, his disciples then and now, so that includes us, we should expect this. And in and, and many ways, this is to be normative based on the reading of the New Testament. And then our reward may not come on this earth. You might say, man, I've been persecuted. Where's my reward? It may never come on this side of heaven, but it surely will be ours in heaven. And since all the Beatitudes describe what every Christian disciple is intended to be, we can conclude that the condition of being despised and rejected and slandered and persecuted is as much a normal mark of a Christian discipleship as being pure, heart, and merciful. I think we look at the Beatitudes and man, I'll take the pure and heart and merciful ones. I don't know about this whole persecution thing. We are to take all of them together. This is like putting all the Kool-Aid in the cup and drinking it and saying, I want to be pure in heart. I want to be merciful. I want to be meek. Oh yeah, and I'm going to be persecuted. And we should not be surprised if anti-Christian hostility increases, even in our nation. 
Because really, we should be surprised if it does not. That at some point, it will be the normative state. And globally, it is. Globally, our brothers and sisters around the world, it is normal for them to be despised and to be persecuted. And so if anything, in the U.S., we should just be surprised that we we aren't at that place yet. And we can be thankful for that. But then don't be surprised when it gets to that place. Now, how did Jesus expect his disciples to respond under persecution? I think our normal response as Americans is we hear persecution, we think, I'm going to run the other way. If someone comes in right now and they're opposing me, I'm going to go the opposite direction or hide in a closet or do something so I don't get beat up or persecuted. But Jesus says, no, rejoice and be glad. And so if you are feeling that we're facing persecution, I think about those those churches who who say, you know what, because of COVID restrictions, we're being persecuted. If we are, I'm not saying where you're supposed to go with that, but it does say that we are to rejoice and be glad in the midst of it. And I think many of us have forgotten that. John Stott in his book, kind of commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, probably one of the most recommended ones. If you want some extra resources and reading, I would highly recommend getting it. He says, the Beatitudes, well, we just looked at, paint a comprehensive portrait of a Christian disciple. We see him first alone on his knees before God, acknowledging his spiritual poverty and mourning over it. This makes him meek or gentle in all his relationships, since honesty compels him to allow others to think of him what before God he confesses himself to be. Yet he is far from acquisizing his sinfulness, for he hungers and thirsts after righteousness, longing to grow in grace and goodness. We see him next with others out in the human community. His relationship with God does not cause him to withdraw from society, nor is he insulated from the world's pain. On the contrary, he is in the thick of it, showing mercy to those battered by adversity and sin. He is transparently sincere in all his dealings and seeks to play a constructive role as peacemaker. Yet, he is not thanked for his efforts, but rather opposed, slandered, insulted, and persecuted on account of the righteousness for which he stands and the Christ with whom he is identified. So that is to be our place as a Christ follower. That these be attitudes paint that portrait of what it looks like to be countercultural. And as we live these out, that, that this does look different. That these are to be the eight qualities and the eight characteristics that describe your life and my life if we are in Christ. And so as we wrap up this morning, I had two questions. The first question, are these blessings we've looked at present or future? Because some of you may have learned, or maybe you're thinking, these are, these are for like another time. Like These are for when we're in heaven. The answer is both. They're, they're both present and they're both future. It is plain from the rest of Jesus' teaching that the kingdom of God is a present reality which we can receive, we can inherit, and enter into now. So in many ways, they're present. And Jesus promised all these blessings, every single one, to his followers in the here and now. And so the promises of Jesus in the Beatitudes have both a present and a future fulfillment. And so they're present, but they're not fully realized. They haven't come fully into fruition, and that will be the future part. And so we can enjoy the first fruits now, but the full harvest is yet to come. So we have something to look forward to, church. The second question, do not the Beatitudes teach a doctrine of salvation by human merit or good works, which is incompatible with the gospel? In other words, does this not teach a works-based salvation that we're seeking after these things? Not at all. The Beatitudes describe the kind of people reborn Christians are or should be. So if you you feel like your life doesn't reflect this, then I would just do some self-inspection. Just get on your knees before God and cry out and say, God, why doesn't my life look like this? Why aren't these the characteristics I have? Because based on this, this teaching that you gave, this is what I should look like. And God, I don't feel like I'm there. Now, ultimately, none of us have attained to it fully, but it's a good reminder for all of us to say, God, I just want to reflect on my own life and my own heart. And I want you to, to grow me to that place where I have these eight characteristics. 
And so the Beatitudes set forth the blessings which God bestows onto us. They're not a reward for merit, but they are a gift of God's grace to us upon those in whom he is working out their character in this big thing we call sanctification as we're becoming more and more like Jesus. And what we have in the Beatitudes is we see that Jesus measures the standard of a person by their love of God, their love of self, and their love of others. By seeing people who are humble, who who kind of reflect this idea in the, the first part of the poor, by those who work for righteousness and justice, and by those who create reconciliation. Now, if you think about the standards of Jesus, Jesus was very controversial. So you're talking about being in a controversial age, day and age, and being political, all those things. Jesus was very controversial because look at Jesus' standards and our standards oftentimes are at odds. Let me explain what I mean by that. And the things on my list, these are good things. I'm not saying these are bad things at all, but here's how many churches today will measure the standard of one's life. By those who read their Bible and pray daily. By those who attend church regularly. By those who tithe. By those who know a lot about the Bible. By those who preach well. By those who exercise the spiritual gifts. By those who exercise spiritual disciplines. By those who evangelize. By those who have great stories of of conversions. By those who write books. By those who separate themselves from the world and maybe speech or dress. By those who have succeeded in business. By those who maybe run for public office. or By those who, who serve in some particular role in society. But what we see is that Jesus measures us by completely opposite things because Jesus cares more about our heart. And so what we see in Jesus in these Beatitudes, nothing short of a revolution of evaluation. And so we see in those whom Jesus blesses in the world are are those that are meek, are those that are humble, are those who are poor, those who, who, who pursue his righteousness, who hunger and thirst after it, and those who are persecuted. And so church, what I want us to do is I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray over you. And let's just take a moment as I get ready to pray. Right there where you're at, whether you're in your kitchen or living room or bedroom or your office or whether you're right here with us at the stamp building this morning. And let's just take a couple moments of silence and reflect our own lives. And say, God, where is it that I'm, I'm missing the mark? Where is it that I'm attaining in my own strength and trying to bring these things to you, but where I need you to work in my own life so that I am one who's living countercultural, not because of something I came up with, but because of these eight characteristics that you've described for your followers. So let's take a moment of silence and then pray with me, church. God, we come to you right now and just ask that you would inspect our hearts, inspect our lives. God, we lay ourselves out there on your operating table and ask that you would work in us. God, this idea we see in other parts of Scripture, you'd work out our salvation. God, that you would work out our sanctification. Here we have seen eight descriptions of qualities that we are to live. God, these aren't ones we get to choose. We don't get to choose to be meek and then deny being persecuted. God, it says that we're going to take all of these together. And so we ask that as your church, as Sojourn Church specifically, God, that we would have these qualities listed here as, as a result of your salvation and for your righteousness, God. And that we would show that to the community around us here in Northeast Portland and the greater city of Portland and our metro, God, as we live out this countercultural lifestyle 
that you have given us. God, as we move into a time of worship, we give this time over to you. We ask that you would continue to, to speak to us, God, and your Holy Spirit would continue to work on our hearts and our lives. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.